0: is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick and I'm joined as always by Robert, better than an Ivy League educated bro cam.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Such a nice compliment, I guess.
0: <laughs> this week, we're joined by Ron Lieber to d- discuss his new book, The Price You Pay for College, an entirely new roadmap for the biggest financial decision your family will ever make. All that and not GameStop because we're saving it for next week with Morgan Housel on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, Allison, what's up? Well, bro, as the old adage goes, money can't buy happiness. I mean, just look at the 2010 Princeton study by economist Angus Deaton and psychologist Daniel Kahneman. They found that happiness goes up the more you make, but it plateaus once you get to about 75000 in income. doesn't matter how much you're going to make after that. Your happiness just really doesn't improve that much. There are a couple takeaways from this, dare I say, landmark study. One being that once you have the basic necessities in life, more doesn't make you much happier. And the other takeaway being that the wealthier you are, the more you compare yourself to the Joneses and are ultimately left jealous and wanting to keep up. I mean, look at Richard Corey. He owned one half of this whole town. But was he happy? No. Now, don't you feel better? So enjoy working in his factory. But then Wharton's Matthew Killingsworth had to come along with his study just this last month and restore that feeling of Glückschmerz. Yes, the Germans have a word for feeling bad about the good fortune of others. Killingsworth collected 1.7 million data points from more than 33,000 participants who provided in-the-moment snapshots of their feelings during daily life. So essentially, it was an app. It would ping them throughout the day and ask them, how are you feeling right now? and this measured what's called experienced wellness. He also asked people generally how happy they thought they were, their overall happiness, and apparently that's called evaluative well-being. Anyway, so what did he find? Did he confirm that once you look at people with income over $75,000, happiness plateaus, and you just don't get that same happy bang for your buck no matter how much money you make? Well, as it turns out, You continue to get happier as your income rises. And the study didn't find any sort of plateau in happiness after a certain level of income, neither in evaluated or experienced well-being. Why is this? Well, the researcher believes that higher earners are happier in part because of an increased sense of control over their life. To quote him, he says, when you have more money, you have more choices about how to live your life. You can likely see this in the pandemic, people living paycheck to paycheck who lose their job might need to take the first available job to stay afloat, even if it's one they dislike. People with a financial cushion can wait for one that's a better fit. Across decisions, big and small, having more money gives a person more choices and a greater sense of autonomy, end quote. So what's the lesson? Go out there and make as much money as you can because your happiness will just keep skyrocketing? Actually, no because the study also found that people who equate having money to success are actually kind of miserable. They often work long hours and are stressed out about their time. Whoops, there goes your sense of autonomy. Ultimately, the takeaway from the study is that money is just one factor to happiness. And while having money certainly beats not having money, it's ultimately about the sense of control, power, and autonomy that money affords you. And a bunch of other factors too. I mean, I'll bet Richard Cory didn't get a lot of hugs growing up. So, bro, go hug your kids. And <laughs> that's. What
1: I hug my kids all the
0: time. You, Thank you know, they're going to be happy, well-adjusted kids. <laughs>
2: and I wish that I could be. Oh, I wish that I could be. Oh, I wish that I could be. Richard
1: Cory. If you are a parent, chances are that paying for college is one of your top financial goals. And it's not cheap. A four-year degree can cost anywhere between $100,000 and $300,000. And that range is one reason why it's so challenging. Parents are saving for a goal that has an unknown price tag. Here to discuss why that is and what to do about it is New York Times columnist Ron Lieber, who first appeared on our show in 2015 to discuss his book, The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. Ron's latest book, which just hit the bookshelves, is entitled The Price You Pay for College, an entirely new roadmap for the biggest financial decision your family will ever make. Ron Lieber, welcome to Motley Fool Answers. Thank you so much for having me back. So to me, your book is has two major sections. One provides solid personal finance advice on how to pay for college, and anyone who reads your columns know that that's what you would provide. But the other is a critique of and dare i say a diatribe about the higher education industrial complex so what's your major beef with the way the actual cost of college is determined for any given family
2: i guess my beef is the lack of transparency and the lack of predictability these are two different things and you know it'd be easier to get super granular on both of them but you pretty much nailed it in the intro this is perhaps the biggest financial decision that any family will ever make, and yet we don't know ahead of time, even within $100,000, what the final price might be. And that's because of unpublished discounts, sometimes um, ones that are totally unpredictable, uh, and a few of which are the sorts of discounts that families don't even know um, exist and might never find out about if they are not offered to them.
1: So that discount part is interesting. Uh, in fact, you, you talk a little bit about the history of college and, and discounting really didn't be- begin until maybe the 80s or so. Uh, and there was some pushback originally from, from college, especially when you called it merit aid because colleges were basically like, we accepted you. That's enough merit recognition as it is. And then it became more and more of a thing to where now, actually, most people who apply to like a private college will get some sort of help. And the average is around 50% or so.
2: Exactly. So this gets super messy and it helps to try and break it down uh, kind of linearly if possible. Um, So think about it this way. When you you and I, bro, were going through the system, right? Most, if not all, of the financial aid was given out on the basis of financial need. And that was determined by what you had and what you earned with an emphasis on your income. So that was need based financial aid. And then, round about the 1980s, but really ramping into place uh, in the 1990s, a separate system hived off that became known as Merit Aid. Those discounts had nothing to do with what you had and what you earned. And lots of affluent people got them. Originally, they were designed to reward the very best candidates, the very best prospects. Why? So the institution could attempt to buy prestige. Buying prestige means buying better students through the use of discounts so that your average SAT score, your average GPA for incoming students went up. That would be impressive to U.S. News. U.S. News would raise you in the rankings. And then being higher in the rankings would mean, hopefully, that you wouldn't have to give as many discounts away because more people would want to come. But the problem with it is that it worked too well. Right? Once one school does it, the one down the road does it. And the next year, the one after that, and the first one responds. And pretty soon you're in a situation where we are today, where all but the most 40 or 50 selective schools offer some kind of merit aid. And the next 50 most selective are struggling not to have to offer it to everybody. And then down below that, everybody gets a pony, right? And it just depends on what color your pony is and how fast the pony rides and the accessories that come with the pony. But the thing is, right, the majority, maybe even the vast majority of families have no idea how the mechanism of merit aid actually works. And every spring, my inbox fills up with people crying, right? Literally sophisticated people, people who have my cell phone number calling me on the phone at night saying, why didn't anybody explain this to me? I did not shop for this in a sophisticated fashion. And so that ends now with this book, because we are pulling the curtain back and we are going to explain this to people um, and, and they will understand it and they will shop uh, in a more intelligent way.
1: And at the end of it, you include your cell phone number, which is very helpful. Now, really <laughs> right. uh, But one thing you do write about is that you wrote the colleges or the consultants that they hire Suck up all kinds of data about applicants that they then use to set the price they'll charge. Tell us what they're looking at and how they use it.
2: Sure. Well, put yourself in the position of uh, you know mid-tier, small private liberal arts college in the Midwest, not in a city, right? You've got trouble, right? Because declining birth rates, particularly in the heartland, the list price for your school is pretty expensive. Um, you know, only the families that have benefited from inequality can actually afford it. And you're in an extremely competitive marketplace. This is an industry with competitors right, who are slugging it out. So what would you do? You can't really change what your buildings look like. You can't change your brand in the marketplace very quickly. You certainly can't change your tenured faculty and swap them out, right? But you can play around with price. How do you play around with price in sophisticated fashion? You offer different prices to different people, depending on who you think they are. So, you know, it's not rocket science, but we're all surprised that it's happening in higher education because we somehow expect more, right? Or or maybe we expect less. Maybe we expect that it's more genteel, but it just ain't. It is not genteel. Um, And so they hire these consultants and they suck up information on your zip code, which is a pretty good proxy for your after. Influence and your household income, Um, and they use that plus your child's um, level of demonstrated interest, right, based on how often they're visiting the website and how quickly they respond to text messages and you know other clues they have. They're looking for information not just about SAT scores and GPAs, but also on how students from your kid's high school have historically responded to. Other discount offers in previous years, and whether they rejected them or whether they came to the school, whether they stuck it out—all of that gets sucked into a giant computer machine, and an algorithm uses the data to tell the office what kind of discount to offer your teenager.
1: Yeah, it was it. That was kind of interesting to me if not somewhat creepy and that they measure how quickly you open the emails how often you, you how where you visit the website how long you stay on the website that I had no idea about um, but we had uh, since you mentioned small schools in the Midwest um, in 2018 we had uh, a couple of guys from the uh, called the collegefundingcoach.org if I'm remembering it correctly and they said you know one way to get aid is to apply to schools where you are different in some way. I and mean, they offered an example of geographic difference. So said, if you're on the East Coast, like we are, we're in the D.C. suburbs, maybe look at a small school in the Midwest. That's what we did with our daughter, found a charming little school in Ohio. And sure enough, they offered so much merit aid that it was actually cheaper than staying in state. And that school was the College of Worcester, which was the only school in your book that got a whole chapter. Uh, Now, I will say my daughter ended up not going because she wanted to stay in-state, so she stayed in-state at William & Mary. But we did love the College of Worcester. Tell us a little bit about what they
2: do that's unique and what you wish other schools would do. So I did multiple laps of America in the reporting for The Price You Pay for College, and I was reasonably sure that I wanted to find a school that told an interesting story about differentiation, Right, because you go and visit these schools, and a lot of people are making decisions on the basis of feel, which I, I I don't trust my feelings generally when I'm making such an enormous financial decision, and I certainly don't trust my feelings on the basis of a three or four hour stop on a like multi day marathon involving multiple states and nine schools. Right, so I don't like this notion of, of feel, um, and. Uh, I you know I want people to make decisions on the basis of data, or if not data, then on um, some evidence of true differentiation. So you know I was looking for schools that are uh, operating in the part of the marketplace where you have to offer merit aid, but they're not truly completely desperate either. Um, so there are a lot of small schools in Ohio and and Minnesota, small private colleges that qualify. A bunch of them in Pennsylvania too, and elsewhere. So what did intrigue me um, about the College of Worcester? Uh, So a couple of things. Um, There is very little data, precious little, that exists um, on the quality or nature of a satisfied Customer of undergraduate education who is 24 years old. We know very little about what those folks say about what made them happy. And Mitch Daniels, the president of Purdue, finally went out and commissioned a bunch of research with Gallup. And that work. went on for years and years and generated some pretty interesting data. One of which is that um, the people who are most happy as young adults after getting out of college are people who had, who developed a, a sort of mentorship relationship um, while they were an undergrad and got to work on a long-term project. And what makes Worcester unique is that every single senior does what's known um, uh, uh, as an IS. Um, uh, and now I'm going to forget what it stands for. It's Independent ind- study. Yeah, ind- maybe individual study um, you uh, know, I, mean, I, mean, I think it is independent study, right? It's essentially a senior thesis by another name, but everybody does it, and they take it so seriously. Uh, you know that that you use at least two, you know, full classes worth of credit for, and the entire undergraduate experience builds up to it. And at the end in April, they throw this academic Woodstock uh, on a Friday where. Everybody shows up, all classes are canceled, all this delicious food. The parents come, alumni come, and everybody presents their IS project. And, you know, I could have spent a week um, watching this. And the parents are sort of amazed, kind of slack-jawed that these, you know, uh, raw teenagers who they sent over there are now, you know, you know, in the art gallery uh, with an enormous painting that fills literally an entire wall, right? Or this one guy, Jeremy Smucker, did two ISs. Um, one of them was a collection of individual songs that he wrote and sang based off of poetry from the poet laureate And then he did an economics presentation about end-of-life decision-making in nursing homes, depending on what incentives are provided. I mean, I, I I'd never saw, wow. I've never seen fluidity like this before uh, in, in an undergraduate. Um, and so mentored undergraduate research, they've now branded it at Worcester, and um, it is a unique offering. The other thing that they do there is, that is almost completely unique is that they are utterly and completely transparent on the front end around pricing. They have what is the fact like a sort of quasi concierge service where if you're curious enough about Worcester to call them up and ask, they will evaluate your package Before you even apply and give you an assessment, not just of what need based aid you might qualify for, but about what merit aid range you would be in as well. And so you can effectively get the bottom line price before even applying. So, about six months ago, Whitman College in Washington started doing the same thing, which is great, right? And so, um, so Worcester's unique in that perspective too. And so, uh, you know, what falls out from that? Well, I think every shopper for an undergraduate education needs to go to every other school and say, what are the chances that my kid is going to find a mentor here? And how do you engineer that? It doesn't have to be through a mandatory senior thesis for everybody. It may not be practical at a large school, but is the school even tracking that? Is it trying to nudge faculty members into forming mentorship relationships? Or is it the kind of school where the faculty compete to avoid and ignore undergraduates and spend no time with them because of actual contempt for real teenagers? Right? <laughs> this is a thing, right? Um, and you should go to your financial aid office at other places you're thinking about applying to and say, why won't you give me a merit aid pre-read the same way that Worcester or Whitman does, and if they look at you cross-eyed, just tell them that Ron Lieber sent you. <laughs> because eventually, everybody's going to need to do this. We need more transparency when this thing can cost over a quarter of a million dollars, um, and I'm going to will it to be so.
1: Uh, yeah, it's interesting because you did talk about it in the book how where you have these universities that are often really research places, and the, and and the professors. Are really not that interested in teaching. They're much more interested in research. And there is some, you know, there is some research that indicates that uh, some kids who go to college actually don't learn that much.
2: It's true. And look, I, I don't blame these professors necessarily because the incentive structures that are in place. Um, both in terms of uh, you know internal institutional advancement, right, promotion and, and tenure, uh, and then also the ability to kind of like hoover up resources and, and hoard them. Um, you know, it's based almost entirely on your research prowess, right? Um, your ability to attract external funding, say you know this so you can build and maintain a lab. These are the things that are rewarded at, at larger institutions, um, much less so at small uh, at smaller colleges small liberal arts colleges in particular, um, where there's much more of an emphasis on teaching. But you know as far as the learning goes, I mean, sure, there are end-of-term assessments. There are final exams um, and all the rest of that. And and that provides... you know, enough evidence for the professors themselves of the progress that students are making. But if you look at kind of overall critical thinking skills, analytical skills, certainly career readiness skills, we don't have much evidence that students are making all that much progress. And shockingly, given the number of PhDs floating around these places, uh, the schools themselves appear to be remarkably uncurious. Because the, the point at which you... Start engaging in a more rigorous um, set of measurements uh, about the quantity and quality of learning that's going on. I, you know, eventually that leaks out, right? Um, and. If everybody does it the same way, then it becomes another thing that schools have to worry about in terms of external rankings. So I, I understand that the incentive structures uh, you know, do not necessarily encourage better measurement of the learning that goes on and that measuring the learning is costly, but we should just be real about the fact that you know, the small bit of work that's been done on the topic finds that on average, uh, you know, all sorts of undergraduates really don't make much progress at all.
1: So you got a situation here where we understand that sometimes uh, kids aren't actually increasing their their applicable job skills, their critical thinking skills. Um, you talk in the book about the how many career centers uh, aren't very good at colleges. The price keeps going up. So some people might conclude, well, I shouldn't even go to college at all. But you're not necessarily suggesting that.
2: I am not suggesting that. Um you know, I think this notion of the, you know, the the six figure welder and the six figure plumber and the six figure electrician, um, those people are out there. Um, I do question how much access any given student or any given, any given high school student or any given family have to easy entry into some of the more lucrative trades. Um, you know, some of them are controlled by unions; others are just, you know, hard to penetrate for for an average person. Um, so I still believe the default should be higher education. Um, and you know, the economic uh, data are clear, you know, roughly a, a million dollars of extra earnings for people who actually complete the bachelor degree. Um, but it is also the case that all sorts of people go to college and don't finish, right. Or don't finish quickly in a way that's expensive. And so the, the, The more pointed question I would urge families to ask themselves is, what makes you so sure that your 18-year-old is ready for college right now? And if your 18-year-old thinks that they might have an interest in a trade or in going straight into programming or something else like that, Why not give it a shot for a year or two? And if it turns out not to work and, you know, they crave more interaction with their peers and going and trying that really kind of turns them on to the idea of getting back into the classroom with a bigger head of steam then it's become a gap here where they've acquired incredible life experience and not only does the data prove that you know people who take a year or two off get better grades in the classroom anecdotal evidence suggests that you know if you're 23 years old coming out of college instead of 22 uh, employers are going to look at your resume a lot more carefully because you're just more interesting Right? You've stepped off the path that everybody thinks that you should stay on. And then you've gone and done something that's taught you something about the world. And maybe you've got a, a skill that you didn't have before um, and your head set more squarely on your shoulders. So like, who would you hire? Right. Well, a big decision that
1: parents will make is, uh, do you go to the state school or do you pay up for the more prestigious selective school? You provide some research on that. It's somewhat mixed. Let us tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, I would not necessarily default to the assumption that the private school is going to cost that much more. Maybe your goal is going to be um, the private institution needs to come in, you know, within $5,000 of what the state school would cost. um, At in states like Illinois, for instance, or New Jersey, where state subsidies have fallen by a lot, and you know the states are in some level of, of fiscal distress. Uh, you know the flagship state school can cost thirty thousand dollars a year, all in, including room and board. There are plenty of really good small liberal arts colleges that will discount to you know certainly thirty five thousand dollars for an above average student, so you can get that experience without it needing to cost a lot. Now, you may still want to shoot for the more selective institutions that don't discount, and that's fine, but that can be a $200,000 difference, right? So you have to ask yourself, what am I going to college for, right? Is it the education? Is it the kinship? Is it the credential? And then once I've established that for myself, or I've decided how big each of those three pieces should be in my three-piece pie, then you need to sort of go through a a long list of things that might be worth paying extra for. And all of part three of my book is, is about this, and I arm people with a list of questions for each one, right? But it's things like, where am I going to get the highest salary? Right? Maybe you're from a low income background, and all you want to do is take care of your parents the way that they took care of you. Um, and so you're looking for the best engineering program. You're looking for the best computer science uh, undergraduate degree. Um, uh, you know something like that, right? Uh, you know the best uh, the best finance and statistics program, so you can go to Wall Street and be a trader. Um, maybe your goal is. Uh, I want to go to a top five marine biology PhD program. There are ways using federal data, and I describe it in the book, to figure out what the feeder undergraduate programs are for biology PhD programs. Um, And with a little bit of legwork, you can figure out, right? Okay, where are these marine biology PhD students coming from, you can find those undergraduate institutions. You can see who might be your mentor there, and you can decide if that's worth paying up for as an undergraduate so that you can get into the good PhD program where you will be fully funded. And on and on it goes through um, you know, figuring out whether small size is worth paying extra for, whether a diverse school is worth paying extra for, um, schools that have real teachers who actually want to be in the classroom. Um, trying to uh, figure out whether a single-sex institution is worth paying up for, um, mostly for women because there are very few single-sex male schools, and on and on and on down the list. So some of these things will be irrelevant to you, and some of these things will be of vital importance. So once you've figured out for your family, you can hone in on the list of questions that's appropriate for you and see if schools provide not just a satisfying answer, but a thrilling one. Right, and then you will be armed with enough information to decide whether your family and your circumstances are such that it is willing to pay. You're willing to pay for what seems like an upgrade.
1: Let's get a little bit into more of the nuts and bolts of spending. In your book, you talked about uh, a system, or, or a th- I guess really a thought process, in a way uh, that was suggested to you by a financial planner that basically breaks it up into fractions in terms of how you're going to actually pay for the degree. Talk to us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you asked because one of the responses um, to the book so far and the excerpt that we ran in the New York Times last weekend um, that's, that's kind of surprised me the most has been fear, right? And I thought what I was doing was providing the opposite of fear, right? like an antidote to fear, a, a blueprint towards hope. And so, you know, this to me is a little disturbing. And so one, one of the ways we, we kind of get people back from the ledge is that we give them a plan that feels doable. Now, the most important component of this plan is that you start early, right? Like hopefully when the baby is in utero or when you sign the deal with the adoption agency and, you know, the kid is hopefully six to 12 months away from coming um, and, it, and it's a 20 year plan. And it's pretty simple. It's just, you know, divided in thirds, right? Let's say that your goal above all else is to get the kid to College Park, Maryland or Charlottesville, Virginia, right? Those flagship state universities in the mid-Atlantic states. Those will run you roughly $100,000 all in uh, to get the kid through if there is no discount in today's dollars. So you divide that in thirds and it's $33,000 in savings over 20 years. So right away that starts to feel doable, right? 125 bucks a month, earn 6% in a basic mutual fund, you're good to go, right? $33,000 out of current income, right? So that's $8,000 from the parents who maybe, you know, eat some more rice and beans than they usually do and cancel a few vacations. Hopefully, uh, you know, a middle class or an upper middle class family can, can get there, and if not the student can earn a year, relatively easily, uh, working 15 hours a week on campus and full time in the summer, right? And then you borrow $33,000, and the student can borrow just about that much on their own through the federal student loan program, and you're done, right? Or the parents can borrow some too, and you can split it up 50-50. So that starts to feel doable and reasonable when you break it down that way. Now, that doesn't solve for Johns Hopkins. It doesn't solve for Franklin and Marshall. It doesn't solve for a $300,000 bill, Uh, but uh, we can make... The process for you know getting to a very good state institution feel manageable to families, and I want them to feel like this is doable.
1: Yeah, the 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 idea of paying for it out of income is something that perhaps people don't appreciate. But you know, once you've reached your fifties, late forties, which is generally the age you are when your kids go to college, those are your peak earning years. So ideally, you are making more money. And I'll just say anecdotally, who as someone who's had kids in college, once they're out of the house. You're, some of your bills go down. You're not spending as much on food. You're not spending as much on in utilities. So there is some savings in your own personal budget once they leave the house.
2: Right. And that's an important component of it. And um, so, you know, once you you, you break it down in, in that kind of granular fashion, um, it starts to feel doable, right? Because you know, if a, if a kid can earn $10,000 a year m- and maybe parents can contribute um $7,000 a year and then all of a sudden you've got $17,000 to work with instead of the $8,000 that that, you know, that that plan um, um provides or that plan accounts for and then maybe you take on less debt or then maybe you don't have to save as much. And so you know, this can be done if you think about it systematically and you kind of break it down year by year, then it starts to feel um, doable. And so I don't want people to feel intimidated because there, there are so many people who, who just you know, kind of put their heads in the sand out of fear or simply don't have the mental space for it because their lives are already so strained by disruptions in employment or kids with special needs. Uh, you know, I'm not shaming or blaming anybody who hasn't gotten started yet. I'm just trying to encourage people to take even just 15 minutes, um, you know, st- make a plan, start si- siphoning off something. Um, even if it's just $25 a month, uh, to get in the habit. And I, I can just guarantee you that it will feel better if, if you've got a plan.
1: Just a couple more questions here. Uh, you talk about when to talk to your kids about this, uh, and you target around eighth grade. Tell us a little bit about why you th- think that's a good age for them to start thinking about this.
2: Um, so it's interesting to hear uh, you use the word good as a modifier for age, um, because there's a lot of people on Twitter really mad at me right now um, for suggesting this, um, because they think that this notion puts too much pressure on kids. How does it put too much pressure on kids? Well, I sort of feel like you have to tell kids the truth as it exists when they're 14, because they're certainly capable of figuring it out for for, for themselves. And the truth is, is that You know, your high school grades could be worth $100,000 in discounts at some schools in the form of merit aid. And so don't you sort of have to tell them that before they start high school? And aren't they going to be really mad if you don't, especially if you're deliberately hiding it from them because you think it could do them damage, right? The response to that is these kids already feel enough pressure. These kids being, you know, upper middle class kids in upper middle class uh, sort of competitive communities. I'm not sure that all kids really feel that way on the whole, um, but I get where where these parents are coming from. So these are not good choices. I do not endorse um, these two choices as being our only choices, but this is the system as it exists in the world, right? And to opt out of it entirely means to have no particular strategy for you or your family heading towards decisions around higher education. And, and look, that can work, right? Um, a C student who spends their spare time um, You know, tinkering in the basement or uh, working a minimum wage job or doing nothing but. Playing soccer or ice hockey, um, that kid can go to college and do just fine, right? You can go to an open enrollment university. You can go to community college and shoot the lights out there and then transfer to the state university that would never have touched you uh, with your C average coming out of high school. These things are possible. Um, But, you know, for better or for worse, uh, you know, I spend my days in service to people with, you know, above average income and unfortunately above average anxiety. And I'm just trying to help them work the system as it exists. And my colleagues on the op-ed page, the New York Times, they're trying to blow up the system and, you know, God bless them. Um, I endorse systems being blown up, um, but I'm just trying to help people deal with what's in front of them.
1: Let's wrap up with uh, a final question here. You have two kids, ages five and 15. To the extent you feel comfortable telling us, what are you doing to plan for covering the cost of college? And has anything changed as a result of you writing this book?
2: I'm following the same blueprint uh, for our girls that I encourage other people to uh, to follow. We started at, at year zero. We started in utero with with 529 savings plans for both of them. We save as much as we reasonably can. Our goal is certainly not to save the full cost um, before they get to college, um, in part because we don't know whether they'll end up at um, you know schools that offer merit aid and and maybe the cost of them um, it, it will be much less in today's dollars than the full price might be. We just don't know. Um, so nothing about what I do in my personal life is different from what I suggest in the book, including this tip, which I encourage people to um, deploy, which is that Um, our 529 statement comes on paper. It doesn't come electronically. I like opening that envelope for a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, it makes me feel good as a parent. You know, whatever other failings I may have, um, when that piece of paper shows up, it is a physical reminder that this thing, at least this one thing, I am getting that right. Me and my wife are getting that right, right? We are getting that done. Um, You know, crossed off the list, like gold star, pat on the head, right? Um, that at least is going well. And it's also a trigger um, to, you know, duck into my 15-year-old's bedroom and just say, hey, look, you know, um, statement came again. Just wanted to remind you that um, that we're on it, right? This part we have covered. Um, and, you know, we've got X percent of the most expensive, you know, school in America are paid for. Um, and um, part of the reason uh, you may not see us sometimes at night and on the weekends uh, is to do this, Right. Um, and we, so we want to make sure that she's comfortable too. Um, so the thing that was, um, not so much surprising to me because my hypothesis was that this would be true, but it was, um, it was reassuring for me. I spent a lot of time reporting, uh, at schools that I'd never seen before, partly out of my own personal, personal curiosity, but I also wanted to get out of, um, my comfort zone, which just happened to be the you know the Chicagoland area where uh, I grew up, and the greater Northeast where I've spent all of my adult life. So you know, I spent a bunch of time in Ohio and North Carolina, and Minnesota, California, Colorado, checking places out that I just never seen before, and and you know, talking to to people who are not obsessed with um, coastal insanity uh, or big city insanity. And it was a reminder for me that there are just so many colleges in the country, Um, whatever you may hate about our system, we have a ton of choices, like a couple thousand of them for undergraduates. That's amazing, right? And at hundreds of them, I believe, um, my daughters could have an amazing time, meet amazing people, have their brains rearranged by master instructors, and come out with a credential that will be meaningful and useful in their lives. I worry less now than I did uh, eight years ago when I first started to conceive of this project.
1: Which is why, of course, your last chapter was entitled Hope. So very appropriate. Uh, So again, our guest today has been Ron Lieber, the Your Money columnist for the New York Times and the author of the new book, The Price You Pay for College, an entirely new roadmap for the biggest financial decision your family will ever make. Ron, thanks again for joining us on Motley Fool Answers.
2: It was a pleasure and a thrill to be back. Thank you.
0: Oh, that's the episode. It's edited collegially by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Alison Southwick. Stay Foolish, everybody.